You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. Welcome to Oh No Lit Class, the podcast that's not actually a podcast. It's just symbolic of man's struggle with nature and the tragedy of modernity. I'm Megan. I'm RJ. I'm Rob. You are Rob. You're today's, <laughs> you're today's special guest, host of Our Strange Skies, a premier UFO podcast all about how you should definitely go and lick unidentified flying objects. Right, Rob? I don't advocate that at all. You're, <laughs> you're turning my podcast against me right now, and I don't appreciate that. All right, well, then you can go ahead and tell us, you know, what your show is, is actually about, I guess. So what I do every other week is I present a UFO story from history because uh, UFO history is very rich with a lot of stories. So I essentially just present in as much detail as I can a UFO story. Some are more well-known, some are less well-known. And sometimes, you know, we have some guests on to uh, do it. So that's pretty much my podcast in a nutshell. You're also like my second favorite character on Smash. Brothers. <laughs> what? Well, you're Rob. Oh, you kind of look like Johnny I'm, Five. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Except you know, I, I I would normally say I'm so sorry, but you know exactly what you signed up for because you are also you were one of like our first really vocal fans who wasn't my mom, which is a very big deal for us. <laughs> But anyway, it is very cool to have you on. We are very excited to have you on. Our first robot. Stop <laughs> saying words. He's going to be like this the whole time. He's going to be very chippy. That's fine. And so what have you come on? Chip to- damage is important in Smash Brothers, Meg. What have you come on the show to talk about today? I've come on the show to talk about one of my all-time favorite books, Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut Jr. It's so good. I love it so much. <laughs> It, 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 is, it is honestly it is pretty good. We're gonna we're gonna get to that though. We can't I, we we can't do that thing where we get really excited right at the at the forefront. I've always been more of a fan of what happened in Slaughterhouse Number Four. <laughs> that's that's true. I hear they had some ragers back in the day, like a full on rave scene just happening on sixty feet underground. The place to be. Yeah, five was just a downer. See, but then yep. you know you got to be that hipster who was like, no, like he peaked in Slaughterhouse Two. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, But yes, Slaughterhouse-Five, the novel that proposed that time was a flat circle long before Matthew McConaughey did in True Detective. Mm -hmm. So the uh, the full title, Slaughterhouse-Five, or The Children's Crusade, A Duty Dance with Death, uh, was written by Kurt Vonnegut in 1969 and is a dark, sad, funny, and extremely fucky sci-fi anti-war novel by a dude with some demons about a dude with some demons. It is not, as we will explore, a subtle book, but it is a celebrated part of the contemporary American literary canon, and to that end, gentlemen, uh, I guess we'll start with RJ because you're usually the easiest one here. Did you have to read Slaughterhouse-Five in school? Hell no. Of course not. Uh, Rob? 
this was not one of the assigned books that we ever got. There are very few that I can actually remember. One that actually really sticks out, we were assigned Something Wicked This Way Comes by Bradbury in 10th grade. It was assigned by a teacher that looked oddly like Abraham Lincoln if he had made it to old age. That's a look. That is a look, and uh, let me tell you, this man had a deadpan monotone that I still respect. There was this really odd encounter that I had with him. I used to work at this department store, uh, and I used to work in the electronics section, and one day he comes in, and he was looking for light bulbs, so I told him where he could find light bulbs, and I met him up front as he was leaving, because I was going out on a break, and uh, he says, I found the light bulbs. I picked them up, and then one of them exploded in my hand. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I did my best to maintain my composure until I went next door, I got my food, and I laughed my ass off. But, yeah, it, there is n- not a lot of books that I remember being assigned in high school, but I, I know for <laughs> fact this was not one How can of them. you remember any, any books when, uh, when you just have a teacher who would make light bulbs explode with his hands? I know. It was a shock to me. And it's not something I fully recovered from, mostly because I want to know how to get that ability. This is a movie. I've seen it. It's called Powder. Oh, my God. Wow. That is it. That's it. That's a mid-90s classic. That's a deep cut. Nobody's going to get that one. Yeah, all the people who saw Powder. He makes uh, (laughs) utensils stick together, light bulbs light up. They might be more the, more familiar with the uh, tamer version of that, which was Phenomena with uh, John Travolta. <laughs> I, I am much. Uh, I, I prefer Michael as my go-to oh, John fair. Travolta movie. Jesus, Christ. that's fair. We are already in the fucking weeds. <laughs> I've seen Michael. I've never saw Phenomenon. I just know that meme they do with Phenomena. Him. Yeah, it's a Phenomena. <laughs> I think the the only thing I honestly remember about that movie is that Eric Clapton and Babyface teamed up to do the song, which was Change the World, I think. (laughs) That sounds about right. Also, Lucky Numbers, another good John Travolta movie. (laughs) I I think he peaked at Battlefield Earth. That's where the man peaked. Oh, no, no. He peaked at uh, Lineman. Was that the name of it, Meg? Oh, no. Or Life on the Line? God, are we really going to talk about it? We are nine minutes into this fucking episode. We're going to talk about Life on the Line. People, people, people. He plays a lineman. Like a power lineman. He has a facial hair like that dude from System of a Down. <laughs> there, there's a lineman code he, that you have to live by. He dies for the sins of a small town to get the power back on. He basically puts his arms outwards like he's on the cross and connects two different Transformers. Now, in answer to your question, no, I didn't read Slaughterhouse-Five in school. <laughs> I feel I feel like Slaughterhouse-Five is a book that's been challenged too many times to actually like make it into a high school for people to for kids to read. I know no, I know for a fact it was assigned in other classes because like I recognize the name. I know that other kids like in other English classes were reading it. Mm. I had to read Harrison Bergeron, like, oh, on God. three separate fucking occasions. What? Yeah. That's oh. a that's a short story that English teachers love to cram down your throat. Yeah, and it's definitely lost its taste, I would say. Yeah. Like, I, I read it once, and I'm like, eh, okay. So, yeah, I read Slaughterhouse-Five for this episode. My familiarity with Kurt Vonnegut was mostly just, like, Kurt Vonnegut, the, the, the person, 
because he just is like a really cool guy and i've read like his mm-hmm. essays and stuff and i just kind of liked who he was as a dude i would kerfonic yeah. it the legend <laughs> <laughs> i like kurt vonnegut the myth nah that sucked <laughs> i disagree i thought it was great so was this one of the first ones that you picked up or like later uh, later down the line actually i'm pretty sure this was the first one that i ever picked up because i had a friend in college who was like man i picked up slaughterhouse five and i'm like i've never read anything like this before like i couldn't read anything after it i didn't know what to go for next i'm like why didn't you go find some more kurt vonnegut <laughs> like that's a simple simple answer but yeah i, I want to say like maybe six years ago is when i read it for the first time and i read it uh, mostly at uh, work so i looked like a really intelligent person around um, not less intelligent people but people who don't read much because like people like to get outdoors around here they don't like to sit around and read like nerds like me so it was kind of a nerd power play when i want to see impressive at work i read where's waldo uh, that's fuck that is such a power play by buying used it really helps <laughs> Not only used, I try to get my hands on a Cliff's Notes version of Where's Waldo, <laughs> and so far I've been unsuccessful, but I'm sure it's out there. Yeah, you gotta keep the dream alive. Maybe maybe that's yeah. what we'll do next. We'll cover Where's Waldo. Yeah. But before we, we can do that, we gotta get to Slaughterhouse-Five, and before we can sink our teeth into the meat of this novel, we need to learn more about the butcher behind the counter, and that was a weak metaphor, but fuck you, they can't all be winners. RJ, tell us about Kurt Vonnegut. Kurt Vonnegut Jr. was born November 11th, 1922, and died April 11th, 2007. Just 11s all around. Guts was born in Indianapolis, Indiana, home of the Indianapolis 500. But back in those days, it was also only 500 miles. Yeah, it's been the Indy 500 for over a century. Like, come on, cars used to pitter-patter around the track at 70 miles an hour, and now they go easily three times faster. It's like playing Mario Kart. Wait, I, you, I don't even know what this joke is. It should be longer. Why does it with Indianapolis 500? Make it oh, the that Indianapolis they're, oh, 1, oh, oh, that they're, that it's, they're going 500 miles? Yeah. And that, that the race has always been 500 miles in length? Yeah, even when they're going 70 miles an hour. But now they go, like, over 200. Okay. And I mean, like, the Proclaimers would go at least 1,000 at this point. Why can't the Indy 500, like, up their game? Exactly. <laughs> Fucking Indianapolis, man. Yeah. Rob's joke was much better than yours. I'm sorry. So Guts was born to, get this, Kurt Vonnegut Sr. As one would assume. And Edith Lieber. As you might have surmised from the surnames, Guts was of German descent. His dad's side had a line of architects and toolmakers who moved to the U.S. in the middle of the 19th century. They went to Indianapolis and his great-grandfather founded the Vonnegut Hardware Company. Mama Guts was born and raised in Indianapolis, and her family owned a very successful brewery in town, P. Lieber & Co., a.k.a. City Brewery, which in part formed the Indianapolis Brewing Company later on. People of alcohol. Okay. Mama Guts is a horrifying thing to say. Yeah. It's almost like Mama Gump. But it's not. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that how life is sometimes? It, It sure is. While his parents both spoke German, Guts was never taught his ancestral tongue because World War I happened and Germans were not exactly looked upon fondly at the time. In fact, Guts's parents more or less abandoned many of their German practices and cultures and instead turned their American patriotism up to 11. Guts said later in life that not having been taught who he was or who his family came from 
through either language or culture or even German literature left him feeling, quote, ignorant and rootless. Needing to be raised by someone and needing some sort of direction in life, Guts found what he needed in the family's housekeeper, Ida Young, who he described as, quote, humane and wise. Guts said that Young, quote, gave me decent moral instruction and was exceedingly nice to me. So she was as great an influence on me as anybody, and that compassionate, forgiving aspect of his beliefs were due to her teachings. What were his parents doing that he felt like there he just had nobody else to turn to? Oh, we're about to get to that. Oh boy. Any guesses? Uh, cheating with other people. Oh, the clues clues are all there, Mr. Policeman. (laughs) (laughs) You just missed them. (laughs) Is it it alcoholism because of brewery? Oh, pretty close. You're on the right track. Okay. But not alcoholism. Something else happened. Guts' life took a turn for the worse when prohibition oh. became the rage in the U.S. After all, the family's money was linked to the brewery. Oh. And well, with prohibition around, let's just say the brewery business was not all that good, especially since the family did not have ties to any organized crime. So no fun speakeasies. So whereas Guts' siblings got to enjoy the posh private school life, it was hard times at public school for Guts. His parents did not take this well either. Whereas they had been socialites, they became reclusive. Specifically, Mama Guts, who responded to the downturn in fortunes by becoming depressed, withdrawn, bitter, and abusive. She labored kind of like Lady Macbeth. She wanted the wealth and status back that they had before, and when Daddy Guts could not provide it, Guts recounted later in life how Mama expressed hatred, quote, as corrosive as hydrochloric acid. Oof. Hot damn. All right, yeah. Then I guess maybe the, he's like, uh, the housekeeper was not a mean, horrible lady like his mom. Why can't things <laughs> be like they were before that thing you had no part in changing? Well, not a direct quote, I assume. It was close to that. Probably have more cusses. Probably. In high school, Gutch joined band and played the clarinet. Obviously, him and I have a lot in common. Oh. Penises, clarinet playing, and red-blooded Americans. God bless him. I thought you played the sax. I played multiple reeded instruments. Oh. I played the clarinet first. La-dee-da. Yeah. Way to pay attention after a decade of being together. Well, you talk about... Okay, the one you talk <laughs> about is the saxophone. Well, that's the sexy one. Okay, well... I mean, if you're going like, to brag to somebody, you go, you don't lead with clarinet. Because no. then people like go, clarinet, is that like the silver one? They go, no, that's the flute. And they go, well, that's like the one that sounds like a duck? No, that's an oboe. I don't think many people know like what a clarinet is. No, a clarinet is not, not particularly sexy, I don't think. No. It's not in the top ten of sexiest instruments out there that I can think of, no. No, especially when you've got like saxophone in the lineup. In yeah. Your yeah, but I think like Bill Clinton's kind of ruined the saxophone. Yeah, that's fair. That's a good yeah. point. Because when I think of saxophone, like Bill Clinton is at least like the second or third thing to come up. Yeah, like growing up in the 90s, like it's hard not to see his fucking face on my TV with those goddamn sunglasses, like <laughs> doing a sax solo on some fucking late night show. And no. now it's in my brain. On some late night show, excuse you, it was Arsenio Hall. It was more than one. Come on. <laughs> so while in high school, he wrote for the school newspaper, the Short Ridge Echo. He found writing to be, quote, fun and easy, and he enjoyed being able to write for his peers instead of his teachers for a change. Guts said of this turn to writing during high school, quote, It just turned out that I could write better than a lot of other people. Each person has something he could do easily and can't imagine why everybody else has so much trouble doing it. Megan's going to find that one day. Wow. Eat a dick. 
<laughs> you don't do that particularly well either. Oh, well, you know what? Not all of us uh, found our calling like you. It could just slurp down dicks for days. They're delicious and nutritious. <laughs> well, what's the point of living without a good nut every day? Uh, apparently, uh, new philosophies I will take forward with me after we're done today. <laughs> He graduated from high school at 18, and being a small-town boy, if you consider Indianapolis in the early 1900s to be small, he set his eyes on, well, not a bigger city, but he did go to New York State to attend Cornell, New York, a magnet for artists. Upon arriving at Cornell, he stated he wanted to study the humanities or architecture like his father, but his father and his uncle begged him to study a, quote, useful discipline. Motherfuckers, I get the humanities can be a questionable path to study at times, but architecture? Like, I get we were climbing out of the Great Depression and people weren't building the biggest and best things at the moment, but you gotta have a long view of things sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, I don't know. People shit on the humanities. Anyway, got shifted from the humanities to something obviously very related, biochemistry. Of course. Close enough, I mm. suppose. Shockingly, he learned that he hated the subject, didn't really have an interest in it, and he wasn't particularly skilled in the area. Who could have guessed? A talented, passionate writer dislikes the hard sciences. <laughs> Never saw it coming. He landed a spot writing for the Cornell Daily Sun before becoming an editor of the paper. During his time working at the paper, he wrote in passionate articles advocating for American pas passionism. Pa American you were going to say passivism, weren't you? <laughs> American <laughs> passism. You still got it wrong! <laughs> for American passivism in World War II as he was an ardent believer in America staying out of the war. And then Pearl Harbor happened. And then Guts's grades began to suffer, and he was not much of a biochemist. And then he was placed on academic probation. And then he was too frustrated with the whole Cornell endeavor, and he dropped out. This left Guts with a choice. Either likely be drafted into the war effort, or join on his own terms, and he decided to sign up on his own. In March 1943, he went to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, for basic training. While there, he trained in firing howitzers. From there, he was slated to receive additional instruction on mechanical engineering at Carnegie Mellon and the University of Tennessee, but even though he began the program, it ended early because the Army needed bodies for this small thing called the D-Day invasion. Never heard of it. Nope. News to me. Guts was sent to Edinburgh. No. Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it might be Edinburgh, Indiana. <laughs> uh, to train as a scout. He was actually close enough to Indianapolis that on weekends he was able to visit his family. On Mother's Day weekend, he was on a leave and went home to find out his mother died by suicide, specifically to the reaction of overdosing on prescription sedative the day before Mother's Day. Oh my god. Supposedly, she was never able to come to peace with the family losing money, losing social status, and ever becoming a successful writer herself. Guts did not have much time to mourn as he, as he was required to return to training, and within a few months he found himself being sent overseas as, as a scout and was on the front lines of the war. During the Battle of the Bulge, Guts's division was overrun by German forces and 500 men were killed and another 6,000 were captured. Guts was taken by boxcar with about 50 other POWs to Dresden. He recalled Dresden as the, quote, first fancy city I had ever seen. While in Dresden, he resided in a slaughterhouse and worked making malt syrup for pregnant women. This is all going to sound very familiar. Mm -hmm. After two months of being held in Dresden, the city was firebombed by the Allies. 25,000 people in the city were killed in the bombings. Guts survived by hiding in a meat locker three stories below the ground. He said, quote, it was cool there. The cadavers hanging all around. Like the cool kids. Oh, yeah, that's what he meant. It was, it was cool there. It was, 
was a pretty, uh, pretty we dope hanging. place. Yeah, we were just hanging with the cadavers. I work at a uh, nursing home that used to be a hospital, and uh, the storage room where we keep our equipment used to be a morgue, so we, you know, hang out with the ghosts of, like, morgue equipment. It's great. It's fantastic. Uh, it's scary as fuck down there. That sounds absolutely fucking terrifying. It is. RJ don't got a quip for that one. <laughs> Vonnegut continues. <laughs> When we came up, the city was gone. They burnt the whole damn town down. It was another three months before the POWs were liberated from Dresden. By around 1945, he found himself heading back to the U.S. where he continued his service as a writer of discharge papers until he himself was discharged. Before leaving service, he was awarded with a Purple Heart, of which he had to say, quote, I myself was awarded my country's second lowest decoration. A Purple Heart for frostbite. <laughs> I mean, the the only way you could get worse is if it's for a uh, boil that was lanced, because I know there were some that did receive purple hearts for that, so not the lowest of the low. All right, there you go. Step above. How about shooting yourself in the foot, John Kerry? <laughs> <laughs> Friendly fire. <No. laughs> Guts was 22, a free man. He reunited with Jane Marie Cox a schoolyard crush that he had known since kindergarten. The two married in late 1945. The married couple settled down in Chicago where Guts used his GI Bill to attend the University of Chicago and studied anthropology. To survive, he wrote for the City News Bureau of Chicago. In 1947, Jane had the couple's first child, Mark, and Guts dropped out of school despite finishing his coursework because his thesis was unanimously rejected by his committee. When the academic going gets tough, drop out. Honestly, can you picture a worse nightmare, though? Like, you had to write a thesis, I had to write a thesis, then going to, like, your thesis committee and them just being like, no. For those curious, the thesis was on the ghost dance movement within Native American culture, in short, the idea that certain dancing can bring the living and dead together. Kind of like Coco, but less guitars. Maybe that was the problem. They were like, this thesis <laughs> needs more guitars. Needs more cowbell, among other things. Yes, there's there's not enough Gail Garcia Bernal in this thesis. <laughs> Gut showed some guts and applied to work at General Electric as a publicist. The job required a college degree. Guts lied and said he had the degree even though he dropped out twice now and got hired. Those were the days when you could just say shit and people really didn't have a way to check it. <laughs> to be fair, though, I, be fair. I don't think they check it anymore anyway, so. <laughs> there you go, Meg. Like, seriously, like, I, I, given where I work and given the records that the people I work with have, they don't check shit. And I, and I work in a, an industry where you have to have your fingerprints checked and all that good stuff. I'm just going to start fucking lying on my resume. Do Everybody it. else is doing it, goddammit. <laughs> Listen, they recommended it on Mabim Bam. You can do it, too. <laughs> if the McElroy say it's okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I could say, Meg, you know, currently I work at a institution of higher learning and, you know, my resume, I claim to have multiple degrees. They never asked me for a transcript or really any proof that I have the degrees that I say I have. They never do. All, all they did was a criminal background check. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're trying to make sure you got zero felonies. If you got zero felonies, you're fucking in. Oh, man, but I just have all those felonies. <laughs> How many felonies? At, at least six. It, this is where knowing a computer person comes in handy. Or just change your name. Yeah. Jane had the couple's second child, Edith, named after Guts' mom. Eventually, the GE job wore on Guts, who wanted to dedicate himself to his writing, and so he left his job and moved the family to Cape Cod, the home 
but pretty good potato chips. They're not bad. I They are solid. I will go out of my way to get some Cape Cod chips. I won't say no to Cape Cod chips. No. His first novel, Player Piano, was focused on Guts' time at GE. The man knew the secret to writing is writing what you know. Uh, as this novel will show, that's definitely something that he uh, continued on with, in a way. <laughs> the novel mm-hmm. received generally positive reviews, even being likened to Huxley's A Brave New World. The New York Times referred to Guts as a, quote, sharp-eyed satirist. The novel was not considered to be all that important, however, and Guts was pegged as a science fiction writer, which in 1952 was not something he wanted to be. Guts tried to defend the genre and deplored the idea that, quote, no one can simultaneously be a respectable writer and understand how a refrigerator works. (laughs) Burn. The novel was not a financial hit, and Guts fell on hard financial times as a result. He did his best to sell short stories when he could, but it was not working all that well. To make things tougher during these financial struggles, his sister died of cancer just two days after her husband died in a train crash, leaving three children behind, all of which uh, Guts took in with his own motley crew. Damn. Things were not looking good, as Guts recounted later in life, quote, I had gone broke, was out of print, and had a lot of kids. But then... His luck changed. The Iowa's Writer Workshop. You know, the place warmer than Minnesota and more fun than Nebraska. Oh, shit. Called him. <laughs> there you go. We went to both New York and Iowa. Hot we damn. did Writer Bingo. Yeah, you did. An admirer of Guts's work recommended that Iowa hire him for a teaching job at the workshop. Guts compared this to the rescue of a drowning man. That teaching post helped catapult him to winning a Guggenheim Fellowship for research in Germany. He went back to Dresden to see the destruction left behind, seeing that it was much worse than he remembered. During this time, he also learned that the total loss of life in the city as a result of the war was 135,000 people. While he had written about his experiences during the war as soon as he returned stateside, he never really put anything formal together until now upon revisiting Dresden. The writing that he put together is what became known as Slaughterhouse-Five. As we'll be discussing, Slaughterhouse-Five was immensely successful and became a very prominent novel, especially for those interested in its anti-war motifs during the time of the Vietnam War. It was an immediate New York Times bestseller. Guts embraced the popularity, the financial benefits, and the platform publishing an anti-war book during that specific political climate provided. It was 1969. Man was landing on the moon and Guts probably felt like he was in the stars himself. He was invited to give numerous commencement speeches and give talks at rallies around the country. He landed a teaching gig at Harvard, and how his prized book quickly was adapted for the big screen. But, like any Hollywood film or VH1 behind the music, you know if all this was going well in front of the camera, behind the scenes, his life was falling apart. So this is the part where we would do like a slow zoom on a picture of Kurt Vonnegut and it would go like negative. Mm-hmm. <laughs> his wife found... The Christian God, Mm. which conflicted with Guts' atheism. Mm -hmm. She left the family home with five of the six kids. You really got to wonder how much that kid hated the Christian God not to be brought along for the ride. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. I agree. I'll take you five. You get left behind. (laughs) Timmy, you stay with dad. (laughs) Guts said of the split that it was a, quote, terrible, unavoidable accident. We were ill-equipped. To understand. He became depressed as a result and began seeing psychologists on a weekly basis after prescription drugs were not sufficient. His writing became much more labored and it seemed as if his heart had left him. A critic wrote of his work during this time, 
it quote seems Vonnegut is putting less effort into storytelling than ever before and that it seems as if he has given up on storytelling after all. Ah, uh, but there's always that one last turn, isn't there? No, sometimes they just die and it's sad. Well, mm-hmm. in 1979, he married Jill Kremens. Kremens? Kremens. Jill Kremens. Sure. A photographer he met when he was the subject of a piece. The couple adopted a baby together and he got back to writing. His last work was published in 2005, A Man Without a Country, and it was a bestseller. He passed away in 2007 at the young age of 84 after a fall in his home. He actually complained that he was too old anyway the year before he died in an interview with Rolling Stone. During the interview, he said he was thinking about suing cigarette makers. Quote, and do you know why? Because I'm 83 years old. The lying bastards. On the package, they promised to kill me. (laughs) (laughs) So fucking funny. I, I I love Vonnegut's fucking humor. It's so great. At the time of his death, Vonnegut had written 14 novels, three short story collections, five plays, and five nonfiction books. Slaughterhouse-Five has been challenged by school boards 18 times. Usually the complaints are the novel is anti-American, anti-Christian, anti-Semitic, and just plain filthy. Wait, why is it anti-Semitic? I know about those other things I got. I'm not sure about the anti-Semitism. Nah, I'm, I'm confused on that one too. I, th- I think they figured out what anti-Semitism was like the moment before they brought the challenge forward and they're like, oh yeah, it's totally that. Throw it on, add it to the pile. Yeah, exactly. He's German, that's enough. Yeah. Ah, even though it's... it's How it's, dare a German try to publish a book after World War II? <laughs> a, a book about Nazis in World War II. <laughs> yeah. But maybe it's like one of those things, like, you know, like when they have a movie that has a swastika in it, they go, well, it's anti-Semitic. And then, and then you go, sir, sir, this is a Steven Spielberg film. <laughs> Schindler's List, anti-Semitic. <laughs> In a Supreme Court case in which Slaughterhouse-Five was one of the books removed by a library, the plurality in Island Tree Schools versus Pico held that students do not shred their First Amendment rights at the schoolhouse door. Do not shred their First Amendment rights? <laughs> they do not shed. Okay, I kind of like shred better in all honesty. Yeah, just like, just like take the Constitution, rip it off before they walk through the doors. Yeah! They do not shed their First Amendment rights at the schoolhouse door, and that goes for what they can say as well as what they can be exposed to, and so books cannot just be removed all willy-nilly. Is the book anti-American, anti-Christian, anti-Jews, and just plain filthy all at the same time? Stay tuned and find out. Oh, also, before I turn this over to Megan, in an oh no what class first, the asteroid 25399 Vonnegut is named in Guts' honor. I don't think any other Ono oh class alum has had that honor yet. No, I don't think so. Yeah. That's cool. Asteroid with his name on it. It's pretty dope. Mm-hmm. And themed to our guest. Absolutely. Because it has to do with space. <laughs> and sometimes people see some stuff in the sky and they think it comes from space. Yeah. Yeah. Did such a good job there. <laughs> totally. Hey, I'm made of stardust. Just like... <laughs> Two five three nine nine Vonnegut. <laughs> you are. You're very special. Yep. Yeah. I'm made of the same stuff as Neil deGrasse Tyson. I don't know if we want to admit to that anymore. No, I would. I wouldn't want to admit to that. Apparently, people claim the book repeats Nazi uh, propaganda. Oh, you? Oh, you're googling? Yeah. That's that's a stretch. Yeah. Would, that's a I real. Like, agree. there's a lot. There, like, there is definitely some problematic shit in this book. It's it mostly it's gonna be the shit that I usually bitch about um, in terms of writing like female characters and yeah. things like that. But that's a really big stretch. Mm-hmm. 
And as as a Jew at large, I'm always on the hunt for anti-Semitism in work. <laughs> Hey everybody, it's Megan, and this episode's a big meaty boy, huh? I regretted those words as soon as I said them, but it, I guess it's too late now. Uh, so I'll try to be in and out as quick as I can, and I regretted those words as soon as I said them too. So anyway, this episode is, as always, brought to you in part by our wonderful, beautiful, amazing patrons. Just so much more amazing now more than ever, including our newest one, Kevin! Thank you, Kevin! Uh, they recently voted for what's gonna be our next episode, and you thought this one was uh, a fucking humdinger. Will you see the next one? This episode's Pod Pals is the show Not If I Reboot You First, hosted by Tanner and Lindsay. And it's all about taking movies and TV shows and stuff and, well, rebooting them. And generally trying to make them better, or at least gayer, which you know what? That's something I can get behind. I've had a chance to listen to a couple episodes, and honestly, like, they're adorable, and please don't take that the wrong way. Like, they're really funny, but Tanner and Lizzie just have this really great, like, comfortable interplay and chemistry together, and it's just really funny and really cute. It's just a good show to enjoy and giggle to, and that is, that's something we need in these dark times. Especially Tanner's Starscream impression. That is definitely something we need in these dark times. Hi, I'm Tanner. And I'm Lindsay. And together we host a podcast called Not If I Reboot You First. It's a show where we take our favorite properties and reboot them before Hollywood gets the chance to. We also do adaptations and spin-offs and sequels, but everybody seems to call those reboots too. It's everyone's favorite buzzword. Sometimes we make something really good, like when we turn the mummy into a proper pilot for the Dark Universe. Sometimes things go bad and I drunkenly yell at JK Rowling for an hour. And sometimes it gets really weird and we time crash the entire Mighty Ducks franchise into a single universe. So join us every week for something that's a little bit like brainstorming fanfiction. Follow us on Twitter at N-I-I-R-Y-F-Pod. Those are the letters for the name of the show and it's pronounced NEARIF! I turned Princess Belle into Iron Man once. Wait, what? But uh, anyway, so, Slaughterhouse-Five, as it is summarized, sort of, because of- Wait, Ken, before you, before you continue, I just want to apologize for picking a book that does not have an easy plot summary to go along with it. <laughs> yeah, you I, did I, that. I, I apologize <laughs> profusely. Because I was going to say, according to the logic of this book, it's happening all at once, always, concurrently, and there's nothing we can fucking do about it. Thanks, Rob. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No problem. <laughs> yeah. So the novel opens with our, our narrator, who we can safely say is Kurt Vonnegut, and he has chosen to kick things off by assuring us that most of what we're about to read is true. At least the war parts, anyway. So uh, let's look at a checklist here. We've got a 1960s novel where an author is inserting himself to create a situation where reality itself becomes a subject of unreliability, and we're now hyper-aware we're reading a work of fiction. This sounds like a postmodern novel. Can I get a... Dun, 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 from no. you guys. No. Oh, you would deny me my dun, dun, dun. It's a shame. It's a shame. I know. That yeah. is. That's very hurt. It's hurtful. The, the postmodern thing would be like a penny whistle. <laughs> 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 All right. Damn it. You're not wrong. <laughs> I might have to put one in now. Or the sound of playing bongos on Foucault's head. 
Skin on skin, baby. <laughs> Holy fuck. That's real niche, but it is Yeah, funny. it is. You think you can pull is. the skin of his bald head, kind of like you pull on testicles? And that was stretch. that was a joke just for you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, scrote head. Yeah. Penny whistle. <sighs> okay. Skin bongos. When I am done, I'm going to uh, order those online and add them to my repertoire. <laughs> you gotta have some scrope on. No, if we keep talking about it, it's gonna end up becoming a thing, and then I have to leave it in. <laughs> I'm pulling up a picture of Michelle just to look at for the rest of this episode. Good. Something to keep you busy. Yep. <laughs> Come on, man. Yes! His, his big bald head looks like a scrope. It was like just <laughs> on TV the other day. Look at that thing. I don't even remember what we were watching. Oh, we were watching the thing with the, about the gays. And, uh, yeah, the gays. Always with the gays of Foucault. Yes. He's all about gazing. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, we did look at him and we're like, man, it do- it is a big bald scrote head. Yeah, it uh, is. Yeah, a bitch in a leather jacket, though. <laughs> Anywho, I will say, though, right up front, even though it is a postmodern novel, hold your booze, your tomatoes, your empty beer bottles, and whatever else you've been trained to hurl at the concept of postmodernism. Or maybe that's just me, and I'm projecting, but either way, we're going to give this one a chance. So Vonnegut gives us some details from the war that he says are present in the book, like a guy getting shot for stealing a teapot, and that he did indeed return to Dresden, where he was held as a POW during the firebombing 23 years after the war with money from the Guggenheim grant, which already described. One thing that he says is great. He's like, I really did go back with that Guggenheim grant, parentheses, God love it, <laughs> which is just really nice. Yeah. Like, the book is just full of, like, these really good little touches of humor like mm-hmm. that. And even after we, like, leave what we would consider Vonnegut's perspective, <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> All right, um, as I often have to do with this fucking audio medium, RJ has pulled up a, uh, the steal his look meme, but it's a picture of Michel Foucault, and he's wearing a, a white turtleneck and a leather jacket, so it's the, a Saint Laurent leather jacket, a white turtleneck, a Warby Parker oh, glasses, and a 99 cent pick racer. <laughs> And the first name is oh, Eve. Eve Samurai. Whatever. I didn't know how to pronounce this. I didn't fucking say it. <laughs> Holy fuck. <laughs> and I like this quote they attached to it. Uh, Imitation it, is the sincerest form of flattery. Michelle Foucault, 1980. <laughs> oh, no, no. It doesn't say 1980. It very much says the gay 80s. <laughs> so great. <laughs> well, I think I could pull that off. I think you could, yeah. honestly. And you probably wouldn't look like a walking testicle when you did it. <laughs> Anywho, the book is full of a lot of these really nice little idiosyncratic touches. And he talks about how he's been wrestling for years to write what's supposed to be this very important masterpiece of a book, but he just can't tackle it. And he's written the outline dozens of times, including once in crayon on the back of some wallpaper, and that that was probably the best one. And he confers with an old war buddy who was in Dresden with him about it, and they can't do more than just dance around the subject because probably trauma, which is going to be the answer to a lot of questions in the book, Mm -hmm. because probably trauma. Isn't that the answer to most questions in life? (laughs) Yes, that and maybe aliens. Maybe. But uh, anyway, we just get some general details from Vonnegut's life, or this version of his life anyway, that are going to filter through sections of the novel. Postmodernism, yay! (laughs) 
that um, I'm not going to go through or we'll be here all day. A lot of it is repetition of phrasing, and that's something that's more fun for you to just read through on your own anyway and be like, aha, I read that phrasing earlier in a previous section. Oh, what can we interpret from that? Uh, long story short, Vonnegut takes his daughter and her friend to the New York World's Fair in 1964, and then onward to see his aforementioned war buddy named O'Hare, and they hang out at his house while their kids play together, and they talk about the war, and O'Hare's wife Mary is clearly really pissed about something, but Vonnegut can't figure what, and he tries to ask O'Hare, and he's like really evasive, and then she just like flat out yells like, you were just babies then, and she's very angry about the fact that they were just like basically teenagers, or barely not teenagers during the war and thinks that Vonnegut's book is just going to glorify their role in World War II and, quote, turn them into men, and that they'll be played by Frank Sinatra and John Wayne. And The Duke! Yes. The man with 40 pounds of poop in his colon, <laughs> famously. Yeah. I had to say it before you did. I think I heard that for the first time on this podcast. I'm a man of varied knowledge. <laughs> yeah, that's what we do here. We teach you things. Yes, you do. So Vonnegut promises her that he won't do this, and the book he writes will have no part in it for those actors, and that he will even title it The Children's Crusade, as we find out as it gets up on there on a subtitle. Vonnegut eventually gets a three-book deal, and the first of three will be his long-awaited Dresden book, which he informs the reader is this book, the one you're reading right now. He also warns you that it's not going to make a ton of sense, because war doesn't make nope. sense, which on the one hand is kind of a cop-out, but on the other, fair enough. Mm-hmm. Finally, he talks about how after he and O'Hare are flying back from their visit to Dresden, they're waylaid by fog in Philadelphia and have to spend a night in a hotel. He opens the hotel Bible and reads about Sodom and Gomorrah and about Lot's wife and how she turned into a pillar of salt because she looked back when she was leaving. And he says he loves her for it because it's a deeply human impulse. And I like that. That kind of, that reminds me of our episode on like Orpheus and Eurydice and the impulse of looking back. Mm-hmm. But I suppose that's neither here nor there. But Vonnegut, for his part, says that he's done looking back and that he's written his Dresden novel, gotten it out of his system, and now he doesn't have to think about it anymore. And he can write fun things now, which is kind of a bummer for the the reader. Like, have fun reading this thing I had to excise like a tumor from my brain so I could write about things I actually enjoy. Bye. (laughs) Before uh, taking his leave of the novel, at least for a while. Vonnegut tells us the book will start with the line that Billy Pilgrim has become unstuck in time and will end on the line... Uh, also in that in that first chapter there's a joke and and it's the only joke that i've ever seen in a book that has actually evolved and the fact that he's talking to his uh publisher and he says uh you know he's saying it's an anti-war book and he's like you know (laughs) you should write an anti-glacier book because what he's trying to say is that you know you can't stop a, a war just like you can't stop a glacier and now that's a joke that has aged particularly well Yeah, that's a joke with a fresh spin on it. big time. (laughs) Because it appears that wars will outlast the fucking glaciers, folks. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, what do you think Michel Foucault would think of Titanic? (laughs) He's got his laptop open to a Michel Foucault finger puppet, and I just haven't been acknowledging it. Well, to counterbalance, I do have my Kurt Vonnegut finger puppet. (laughs) So there. Are you currently wearing the Kurt Vonnegut finger puppet on your finger? Yes. Excellent. Uh, see, I would wear my Michelle Foucault finger puppet on a different appendage. That's fair. That's totally fair. And that is applicable. I. Yeah, yeah I, I think Michelle Foucault would yep. approve. Uh, yep. So. <laughs> yeah, yep. 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 And so it goes. Which is something you're going to hear a lot of. Every time something is dead, typically, in fact, be it a person, an animal, an idea, a glass of champagne that's gone flat. 
so it goes. Mm-hmm. But uh, we'll we'll go we'll go into it later. We we kick off the novel proper with the promised line that Billy Pilgrim, perhaps the world's most passive and disinterested protagonist, who for the most part cannot be bothered to engage in his own story, has in fact become unstuck in time. We join Billy, already in progress, and learn that he's been bouncing from birth to death and everywhere in between many, many times. We actually start just hearing about how Billy has had a rough time having a slingshot around his life from being born in 1922 in the fictional town of Ilium, New York, where he grows up a dorky wimp who starts optometry school before being drafted into the war, during which his dad dies in a hunting accident. So it goes. We learn he's honorably discharged in 1945 after being taken prisoner by the Germans and that he goes back to optometry school, gets married, and has a nervous breakdown that we'll get the details on later. That's how a lot of this book rolls, since the timeline is so fractured. Don't worry about it, you'll get the details later, so it goes. (laughs) He makes a bunch of money as an optometrist, he has a daughter named Barbara, son named Robert, and then in 1968 he gets in a plane crash that kills nearly everyone else on the plane, so it goes. Lands him in the hospital, where his wife dies on the way to try and see him, so it goes. And then he gets real weird and runs off to New York City to tell people that he's unstuck in time and also was abducted by aliens in 1967 and taken to a planet called Trafalmador to be in their nude zoo and mate with a porn star, but more on that later. His daughter finds out and is like, what the fuck are you doing, dad? He's like, I don't know what you mean. You're going to have to be more specific. And then he writes a letter to the newspaper about the Trafalmadorians, who see in four dimensions, and this is so fucking great. Rob, do you want to tell us what the Trafalmadorians look like? Sure. Uh, the way that he describes them is that they look like a plumber's friend, and uh, this is an old term for a plunger that is green, and on uh, their, the plunger head sits on the floor, and on top of the stick is a hand with an eye in the center of it. So fucking good. It's, it's literally, I, I would say, the best aliens in fiction. I can't argue with that. <laughs> so he writes how seeing in the, the fourth dimension affects how the Trouths, which is how I'm mostly going to call them because I, I fucking struggle with that name, uh, how they see death. I'm just going to read out the paragraph about how they, like, function with death in full because, like, damn, Vonnegut. Like, holy shit. Mm. Quote, the most important thing I learned on Tralfam—see, I can't fucking do it. <laughs> on Tralfamador was that when a person dies, he only appears to die. He is still very much alive in the past, so it is very silly for people to cry at his funeral. All moments, past, present, and future, always have existed, always will exist. The Tralfamadorians can look at all the different moments just the way we can look at a stretch of the Rocky Mountains, for instance. They can see how permanent all the moments are and they can look at any moment that interests them. It is just an illusion we have here on Earth that one moment follows another, like beads on a string, and that once a moment is gone, it is gone forever. When a Trafamadorian sees a corpse, all he thinks is that the dead person is in a bad condition in that particular moment, but that the same person is just fine in plenty of other moments. Now, when I myself hear that somebody is dead, I simply shrug and say what the Trafamadorians say about dead people, which is so it goes. And so it goes. (laughs) I think, like, one of the, additionally with the way that the Tralfamadorians see things, I like how, like, to say if they were looking up into the sky, instead of seeing stars, they would see rarefied, luminous spaghetti. Yes. That's a, yeah. Ah, it's so good. And that, like, that, like, kind of fucked with me a little bit now. So I could only imagine if I had read it when I was, like, 15 or something what that would have done to me this is a book that can fuck with your mind absolutely yeah so his daughter barbara's 
less than pleased with his dad's alien shenanigans and blames it on the head wound he received from the plane crash. And he says she's wrong, but that he never said anything about it before because the time just never felt right. Obviously. You know, when is the right time to tell your daughter about your alien abduction? Never. <laughs> Literally never. <laughs> Barbara thinks he's senile, but also Barbara's only 21 and has had to take care of her dad since the accident, which happened concurrently with her mom's death. And her dad has very little interest in taking care of himself. And the book says this has turned her into, quote, a bitchy flibbert gibbet, which seems Deeply unfair. Yeah, I I agree. Um, and that is that definitely gets to the problematic aspect of this book and the way that Vonnegut writes women. Yes, this is the first of many times where I'm going to metaphorically steeple my fingers and look at look at him and be like, Kurt, Kurt, are we going to have words? This is the low point, I think, because this is around the time that uh, Slaughterhouse-Five is published is around the time that his first marriage is ending. So I think maybe that has something to do with it. Then again, Kurt Vonnegut has not always been great at writing female characters, even after this. So So it goes. Anyway, this is when Billy says that he became unstuck in time way before he was abducted by aliens. And that was back in 1944, when he was 21 and in the military as a chaplain's assistant. A position that Vonnegut points out is just, like, so completely nonsensical. Like, he's not even doing chaplain stuff. Like, he's just helping carry the organ around. And he, he literally has almost no purpose to serve in the context of the war because he can't actively do anything. He can't help. He can't hurt. <laughs> yeah, and to be honest, I don't believe that chaplains had assistance in the war. I don't recall thinking. I, I can't think of a chaplain that ever had an assistant, but I could be wrong on that. I would have no way of fucking knowing. Uh, I'm kind of a, I'm a little bit of a World War II buff. So like, I know, I know some things like I know his parts in the war. They are particularly like bad, but we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. See, that's, yeah, that's where you're gonna have to tell me, because yeah. it's like, I don't fucking know, I could just be reading and be like, yep, sounds good to me. But even if it's not historically correct, it's literarily correct, because it's a strong metaphor for Billy as a person right. in general, because Billy doesn't do shit. I would describe Billy Pilgrim as milk toast inside of a trauma sandwich. Pretty much, yeah. Because, like, yeah, Billy is traumatized as hell, and that can excuse a lot of things, but also... Yeah. B Billy just kind of sucks as a as just a person. Yeah. I mean, exactly. he's Cinderella, which we'll also get to. Things just kind of happen to him. Also, no one likes him, but that's not really quite Billy's fault. He just mm -hmm. has the misfortune to be surrounded largely by dickheads. And so, case in point, he gets sent to the front after another chaplain's assistant is killed in action. So it goes. And uh, never even makes it to his post or even has the chance to get kitted out, get a weapon, or even get out of his civilian clothes because he's immediately tossed into the Battle of the Bulge. So it goes. Uh, and it sure as hell does not go well. So then Billy finds himself somehow still alive, but lost behind enemy lines with two scouts who we'd never learned anything particularly useful about and an 18-year-old kid named Ronald Weary. Weary is an asshole. Oh, he is the mega asshole. So uh, if you want a little historical context here for the Battle of the Bulge, essentially this is the last German, like, really big offensive to try to hold off the Allies. And basically... There's this line in Belgium that the Allied troops are doing their best to protect. They have literally zero supplies, and they're just taking shell bursts left and right. So they're basically just sitting targets in trench holes. 
in many ways, like, it was easy to get lost on the line. And many soldiers would just wander into enemy territory just, like, really easily. So, yeah, the Battle of the Bulge was probably one of the worst battles of the war. Damn. Yeah. I don't have anything useful to add to that. Just, like, damn. If you want a really good example of how it was... There's two episodes of the show Band of Brothers that covers it really well. And now we have the Battle of the Bulging Wasteline. Yep. Uh, thank you, The Washington Post. <laughs> Th- thank you, New York Times editorial. <laughs> I-, I can tell who's going to get the Pulitzer this year. <laughs> Just like the greatest generation fought the Battle of the Bulge, as we fight the invisible enemy, we have to fight the Battle of the Bulging Wasteline. Okay. You- Check it out in the New York Times. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. You got to get to a paywall to read it. <laughs> You know they're going to pony up for the old gray lady. (laughs) They'll give it to you for $8 a month. (laughs) So back to Roland Weary. Roland Weary is a a horrendous little prick who's only interested in two things. Talking about various torture devices and showing people a picture he has of a woman having sex with a pony. Side note, weird sex stuff is also a postmodernism thing. I think because, in all fairness, postmodernism really kicked off in the 60s and 70s, and weird sex stuff is also a 60s and 70s thing. Yeah, definitely. That's my deep literary analysis. I I agree, 100%. (laughs) Anyhow, Weary keeps doing both of these things to Billy because Billy doesn't try and stop him. As we mentioned, Billy doesn't do much of anything, actually. Multiple times they evade capture, and Billy has to be manhandled away from German gunfire because it seems only fair that they get a good shot at him. Because reasons. Weary keeps saving Billy's life basically against the other guy's will, not because Weary gives a shit about Billy, but because it feeds into the badass war story Weary is busily constructing in his head as they wander around in the woods. In Weary's version, he and the scouts are the three musketeers, valiantly protecting Billy, the idiot, whereas in reality, loud and obnoxious Weary is just as big a hindrance, to the point where the scouts eventually just ditch them both. So it's here in the forest that Billy becomes unstuck for the first time and travels uh, first to a time after his death, where it's just a violet light and a gentle hum, then back to his childhood where his dad taught him to swim by hurling him to the pool at the YMCA, and then to 1965 at an old folks' home where his mom asked him how she got to be so old, and then zip from there to a little league dinner, and then zap from there to New Year's Eve, 1961, where he cheats on his wife. Because of course he does! You gotta have a scene where a guy cheats on his wife, I guess. Billy makes, like, three active decisions ever in this book. Two are about sex. We'll get there. Mm -hmm. One funny bit is the woman asks why he goes by Billy instead of William, and he says (laughs) it's for business reasons. Yeah. It it, it is. Business, business, business. (laughs) Business, business. But you don't know too many adult Billys. It's more memorable. It's more friendly sounding. People trust him. Now, Billy didn't come up with this on his own. His dad did. Mm -hmm. It's important to note. And then after having his sex, Billy, who's super drunk, tries to drive home by finding his steering wheel by, like, feel. And he can't do it. He makes it from the left side of the car to the right without finding it. And he goes to sleep very angry that someone stole his steering wheel. And then he doesn't realize that he's in the backseat of his car. (laughs) This is not consequential to the plot. It's just really funny. There's there's a lot of moments like that in this book that just, like, cut through the, uh, the, the war parts very well. Yeah. So he properly wakes up, having time traveled back to 1944, and the bundle of joy that is Roland Weary is ready to beat the shit out of him because they've been abandoned, and they're captured by German soldiers. Like, really sad German soldiers. Like an old man and a 15-year-old boy and a farmer's dog named Princess. 
like some real Jojo Rabbit type shit. Right, and I I love the fact that in chapter one, when he's having that conversation with Mary O'Hare, she says something to the effect of, uh, you're going to write a part for John Wayne and Frank Sinatra, and he reassures her and says that there are no parts for John Wayne or Frank Sinatra in this book, and I think what's great is that he fulfills that promise with these scouts who are really probably the John Wayne and, and Frank Sinatra parts. He doesn't even give them names, and they just die instantly, so... That's true. Yeah, if they don't have names, they don't really have characteristics, they die off screen. Yep, pretty much. (laughs) So the boy who captures them has on wooden clogs, and since Billy's already wearing shitty broken civilian shoes, they make Weary swap his boots with the boy, put the clogs on, and they fuck his feet up almost immediately as they march the two to a temporary camp where Billy falls asleep and time travels to 1967 in the middle of an optometry exam he's giving for a girl who needs reading glasses. After she leaves, a siren in a firehouse across the street goes off, signaling that it's noon, and Billy flips out and just happens to time travel travel back to 1944 for a moment before quickly going back to 1967, which is a pretty big clue right there that things are probably not as sci-fi as they seem re-time travel and are probably more because trauma. Right. We stay in 1967 for a while here and learn more useful facts like Billy has been prescribed scheduled naps on a magic fingers massage bed as a cure for the problem that he often finds himself crying for absolutely no reason at all. Definitely not untreated PTSD. Why would you even think that? Crazy. Right, and it's like every doctor that it seems to like be in that like clinical sense with Billy never thinks it's because of the war Sometimes they think it's because of his father throwing him in the pool when he was young, or sometimes it's something else, but it's never the war. No, never the war. No. That would be, that would just be wild. Yeah. On the wall of his office is the, uh, the serenity prayer, the God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to always tell the difference. And Billy's like, I can't change anything. Whether the truth of this is debatable. But, I mean, we can we could definitely make up cool fantasies about alien abduction, though. And we sure can. Hell yeah. And we will. Yes, we will. <laughs> Billy gets into his massage bed, and he cries, and he wakes up back in 1944, where he and Weary have joined a whole stream of American POWs. And we get this weird moment where a, a very sick colonel thinks he recognizes Billy from his regiment, and he's like, Hey, remember me? It's Wild Bob from Cody, Wyoming. After all this is over, if you're in Cody, Wyoming, just ask for Wild Bob. And Vonnegut reappears in the narrative and is like, Hey, by the way, I've been to Cody since then, and so is my friend O'Hare. Just in case you were wondering, Wild Bob was not there, because he dies. So it goes. Okay, bye. (laughs) And then he goes away again. (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs) Vonnegut, goodbye. (laughs) And then they're all shepherded onto a train that will take them to the POD, uh, The The youth of the nation is being ushered onto the train. No, shut up. I didn't say that. You said P.O.D. You can't cut it out now. No. Damn it. Don't turn it into a joke. Then I have to leave it in. (laughs) Let's just say at this time there were no satellites. (laughs) You know more than one P.O.D. song, which is honestly a joke all the time. I've seen P.O.D. live. (laughs) You're just going to admit that in front of God and everyone. Yes, I I have no shame in front of the eyes of the Lord right now. (laughs) Some might say he's lost in forever. Oh, no, you you, know, you don't know P.O.D. songs. You Googled them, didn't you? Megan. Oh, no. Yeah, nope. He Googled them. He's about to drop some more. This one goes out to you. 
Youth of the Nation is literally the only one I know. These jokes are just for Rob now. Will you set it off? <laughs> God damn it. Welcome to the POD Fan Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> no, welcome to the P.O.D. cast. <laughs> Am I awake? I fucking hate you both. Now, the thing about Slaughterhouse-Five. Yeah, you could tell me the thing about fucking Slaughterhouse-Five. <laughs> this ain't no ordinary love song. <laughs> they- Some might say it's ridiculous. <laughs> anyway... They're going to a POW camp. It's much less fun than a POD camp would be. But good news, Meg. <laughs> no. It can't rain every day. I hate it. This is the bad part of the book. We can't make jokes about it. This is the rough part of the book. There's just a lot of rough parts about this book, though. This is just one. <laughs> no, the, the the train section of the book is really harsh. Yeah. Um, it's it's meant to be. It's it's a German prisoner train in World War II, and that's bad. And it's always bad, and people die on the way. And it's the longest train ride in the universe. And Vonnegut makes it feel like the longest train ride. So you know, it's supposed to be a rough read. There's a lot of freezing cold and death. So it goes. And having to shit in a bucket. And Billy at least gets to try and travel away from that to 1967. Or is he flashing back to it from 1967? Hmm. Mm -hmm. To what is apparently the night he will get abducted by the The Tralfamadorians? That. Yeah. So this is where it's interesting. Billy can't sleep and is wandering the house killing time. So it goes. Before he knows he's supposed to get abducted because he's already been through his whole life once over and then some. Which, of course, begs a question we'll revisit a couple times, which is one of free will. Billy never once tries to alter the course of time or events in his life. Not even the plane crash, and that one's for a really stupid reason. So it's not even necessarily a fatalistic thing, but we'll get there. We're not going to talk about it yet. We're going to get there. (laughs) I'm I'm holding it back. I'm holding it in. (laughs) He's just so fucking passive. And it just makes you want to scream. So he just hangs out and he watches a movie, like checking his watch until it's T-minus plunger alien time. Yeah, but this is my like favorite part of the book because it has like, I, I want to say maybe Billy's most human unstuck in time moment when he's watching this war movie before the aliens come to abduct him and it's just like he's sitting there and he becomes unstuck in time and he's watching the film play backwards and he has these like sentimental thoughts where it's like you know the bombers you know flew backwards and they in order to pick up their bombs and then they brought them back to the places where the people dismantled them and then you know he just keeps going back until he gets to the point where there's two perfect people in the garden of eden yeah, that is true. I, I got focused on the parts that annoy me. That's fine. You you could be annoyed by them. I am and I will, goddammit. <laughs> Seize the means of production, Meg. <laughs> <laughs> so the aliens, they beam him up, and they communicate with him telepathically, and he says, you know, well, why me? Which is reasonable. And they're like, I don't know. Why not? Which is less reasonable, but oh well. Because we're back in World War II, and people on the train keep dying. So it goes, including Weary, one car over from Billy, who's got gangrene from his fucked up shoes. 
Except he lies and tells everyone who will listen that it was Billy Pilgrim's fault and to avenge him. And uh, finally, the train arrives at the prison and the POWs are all given frozen military coats of dead prisoners, except of course for Billy, who's given a civilian coat with a fur collar that's hilariously too small to the point where it splits when he tries to wear it. But he does anyway, because that's his lot in life. As the Americans march into the camp, we meet two more named characters. Edgar Derby, a dude in his 40s who's way too old to be a private, and as the book reminds us basically every time he's mentioned from here on, will be shot to death after the bombing of Dresden for stealing a teapot. So it goes. And then also Paul Lazaro, a scabby little thief and a psychopath who once fed a dog that bit him a steak with screws in it because he's goddamn evil. And he heard Weary's cries for vengeance and he's decided to find and kill Billy Pilgrim, not because he made some kind of last minute connection with Weary, but because vengeance is fun, even when it's not yours. And murder is also fun. Yay. Yay. Lazaro is a scary man and I don't like him. I, I don't either. Like anybody that goes around like saying like the sweetest thing is revenge constantly. What he also says, uh, you can take a was a flying fuck at a rolling donut. I love that. Yeah, yeah. You could take a flying fuck at a rolling donut. You could go take a flying fuck at the moon. Yeah, just like I I want to start using that. It is pretty good. Apparently, he liked it so much, he used it in another book. Yeah, he's used it in a few more books. Which, I mean, when you got a line that good, it's like, yeah, I might incorporate this. <laughs> uh, Billy starts time traveling again to being a baby, to playing golf, and finally being back on the Trophamidorian flying saucer. They tell him that humans are the only beings that believe in free will. Billy being an exception to the rule, clearly. And that they don't, because they can see the beginning and the end of everything. And that's where you get, like, that really good line about the stars. And also the humans kind of looked like fucked up bugs with, like, baby legs at one end and old people legs at the other. Mm -hmm. And they knew immediately how disappointing Game of Thrones was going to be. Yeah. But that's okay, because it's made up of moments. And they could just simultaneously look at the moments where Game of Thrones was not being disappointing. Yeah, they could just, like, go back to the Red Wedding whenever they wanted. Exactly. Billy wants something to read while they travel back to Trophamador. But the only human book they have is Valley of the Dolls by Jacqueline Suzanne, a book from 1966 that at the time became an instant bestseller, and Billy thinks it's mostly okay. I've never read it, but obviously if you're gonna name drop like that, I feel like there's gotta be a reason. There's a lot of books that he name drops in this. This is true, he does name drop a lot, and I skipped over a lot of them, but this one, this one just like jumps out at me because it's the one human book that aliens have on their spaceship. Right. And uh, there's like one moment where like, cause uh, you know, we've introduced uh, poor old Edgar Derby because he gets shot for stealing a teapot. I don't think that, you know, that portion is actually true because there's a, a moment, uh, I think like a chapter before he's introduced in which Billy Pilgrim's treating a patient in his office and he goes and he sits down in the waiting room and he s realizes that he's sitting on a book and he picks up the book and it's, fuck, it's the execution of, I forget who the private Slovak I think is, was, was his name. And he was, something like that. Yeah, he was the actual last infantry man to actually be shot during wartime because he refused to follow orders. So I think that's, you know, like when we get into the ultimate thing, like, he kind of antiquates things that he finds into, like, kind of his own story at times. So people online have sort of postulated that since it's about, like, girls chasing their dreams, apparently, mm -hmm. they don't accomplish them. They, they get addicted to drugs, from what I read. It, it works in opposition to Billy, who's a dude who just does what he's told and doesn't chase anything. Yeah, Billy reminds me a lot of Pink from The Wall, only he never breaks through the wall. 
Either way, uh, he asked for something else, but they only have Trofamidorian novels, which are short and filled with clusters of symbols that describe situations or scenes that they read all at once. We're told that Trof stories have no real beginning, middle, end, or moral. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> How very postmodern of them. Mm-hmm. Then Billy is tossed backward to when he's 12 years old and sees the Grand Canyon and it scares him so bad he pees his pants. That's a real problem. I mean, I've never been to the Grand Canyon, but it would I would either be in awe or I'd be pissing myself. That's fair. I was there when I was 15. It was pretty cool. I did not pee my pants. I don't think you got the full experience. I must not have. I agree with uh, Rob the Robot over there. You really missed out by not feeling the warmth trickle from your crotch down your legs have you ever seen the great canyon i mean on tv well we gotta get you there in person and see oh, if see pictures if you, see if you pee your pants when you get there i'd be worried about falling in well that's why billy pees his pants he's he's freaky the majesty the falling in. yeah and scared of falling in he pees his pants it's spooky mm. it's not that you really aren't that close to falling in. it's pretty spooky guys Ay. 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 <laughs> And he's back to the, it's okay, because he's back to the POW camp, where they're deloused and welcomed by a group of Englishmen who've just been having a fabulous time being prisoners of war. And that's not a joke. Like, they've been doing awesome. They're uh, all high-ranking officers, and while they've been stuck there for years, they've spent those years in relative comfort, working out, getting extra food and supplies due to a clerical error that's kept them, like, the best-supplied group in the war. They've been smoking cigars, eating chocolate, and not getting shot at. Their prison has curtains and blankets and is all nice and cozy. It's pointed out that the only things supplied by the Germans are soap and candles, which, unbeknownst to the English officers, have been made from the rendered fat of dead Jews, gypsies, communists, and gay people murdered by the Nazis. So it goes. So it goes. Side note, this was apparently one of, like, the first novels that actually acknowledged that gay people were, in fact, victims of the Holocaust, mm -hmm. which I thought was very interesting. Yeah. It also refers to them as fairies, but... Mm-hmm. So it goes! How do we not one of the complaints? Anti-Semitic, anti-Christian, anti-American. We're not anti-gay. They don't care what they're saying about the gays. No. They had it coming, right? Of course. Anyway, the English officers see these beat-down American soldiers from the front lines and are all like, Oi, why so glum, chums? You've got Jerry on the ropes, what, what? And they give him a whole big feast and put on a play for him, which is Cinderella. Mm -hmm. Which, again, metaphor. Mm-hmm. Which Billy laughs at until he starts screaming, which I think is not an unreasonable reaction, all things considered. Yep. So they take him to the prison hospital. They give him some morphine. He dreams about being a giraffe, as one does, before time traveling to 1948 and a VA mental hospital, which is where he had that mental breakdown we mentioned way back in the beginning of the novel. The doctors there think, uh, like you said, that he had his breakdown because his dad threw him in the pool when he was a kid, and definitely not because he was a prisoner of war in a city that was firebombed to all fuck. Here's a fun fact. The town where that hospital is, I grew up eight miles away from it. Oh, no shit. Yeah, like, uh, Ilium's the only fictional town in New York, but in his doctor's office, he, there's, like, a pamphlet, and it says, visit Osable Chasm. I've been there many times. Uh, Sugarbush? They got great skiing over there. Definitely not the coolest name for a mountain in Vermont. That goes to Smuggler's Notch. Definitely an awesome name. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, they're both pretty good. Sugarbush and Smuggler's yep. Notch. 
So in bed next to Billy is a man named Elliot Rosewater, who was also fucked up by his experiences in the war. He is retreated into the works of Kilgore Trout, which is just a wild fucking name, an apparently terrible sci-fi writer that he loves anyway and introduces to Billy. Billy falls in love with the books, uh, and they help the two men cope in a world that they now find meaningless, which, hey, definitely recontextualizes the whole alien abduction thing, especially when we learn that he wrote a book all about the fourth dimension. At the VA hospital, Billy hides from his mom because he can't bear to face her, and then his fiance Valencia comes in, and Billy thinks he's really going crazy because he previously proposed to her. Billy has no real feelings for Valencia. We'll learn more in a bit, but he marries her because... Well, because he marries her. He knows he does. He sees their marriage. He cheats on her, probably because he sees himself doing it and doesn't see a point in trying not to. He sees her death and never says anything about it. Valencia never does anything wrong. Mm -hmm. She loves Billy. Now, whether she loves Billy for Billy or because she's fat and thought no one would ever love her is, like, another story. But, like, I get really fucking uppity about I, That's Valencia. totally fair. She gets a raw deal in this book, and she's, like, the worst character that Vonnegut, I think, has ever written. And, yeah, she, she deserved a fuck ton better. Yeah, no, she's just there. She's just so glad to have someone love her, and Billy's just like, he looked ahead at their marriage and saw that it was bearable. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, all right. Whatever. The only woman that in this book that gets like a fair shake is Mary O'Hare, and that's only because she was real. Yup. Couldn't fuck around on that one because she might come and actually beat his ass. Yeah, and I would have liked to seen that. <laughs> so from here, we jump to Billy finally on the Tralfamador home planet, living in a human zoo, which was why they abducted him. He lives in a special dome furnished with stuff that they stole from a Sears in Iowa City, which is pretty fucking funny. Like, fine. <laughs> They've given him enrichment in the form of a record player and a TV that doesn't work but has a picture glued to the front of it, which is also extremely funny. (laughs) Yeah, it is. I I love that part. (laughs) Also, he's naked, so all the plunger aliens can properly appreciate his weird human bits. They even watch him use the bathroom. Yeah, including his giant wang. (laughs) Yeah, we haven't even gotten to his massive hog yet. (laughs) (laughs) He's kind of into it, though. Like, this might even be... The hog? No, like, like... The, the aliens watching him, like, take a shit. Like, this might even be his kink. Because, like, so the Trouts don't even know, like, from anything whether or not he's an attractive dude. Like, it's like that meme with Marge Simpson where she's holding the potato. Like, yeah. we just think he's neat. So they get so <laughs> excited when he goes and takes a shit that it does wonders for his self-esteem. Right. If you're, if you're getting into the, like, the metaphorical symbolism here, like, comparing that to his time as a POW, like, it's a more freer feeling for him. He feels like he doesn't actually hate his body at this point. He's being gawked at like an animal, but in a very, very, very different way. <laughs> right, like, he's basically like a panda in a zoo. Yes. Um, and he's, he's super into it. Mm -hmm. Uh, they ask him questions and things like that. And he asks them questions. He asks how they're able to live in peace when earth just does murder all the time. And they're like, eh, we sometimes do murder, but we just ignore those moments and focus on the good moments. Cause that's a coherent philosophy. And then he's like, but aren't you scared of earthlings getting space travel and bringing our murder tendencies to the rest of the universe and maybe ending it? And they're like, well, no, (laughs) you guys don't end the universe. We do on accident. Whoops. Whoopsie. Lol. (laughs) Shit happens. And Billy, in literally the only time he considers this, is like, well, well, since you know that happens, could you maybe not do it? And the traps are like, nah, we've already done it. We've always done it and always do it. We're doing it right now. Wild shit, right? You want to hit this bong, bro? (laughs) (laughs) 
And uh, then he travels to his and Valencia's wedding night, where she's super happy about being married. And he's like, yeah, this is fine. And I hate it. And she's like, I bet you're full of secrets, Billy Pilgrim. And she means war stories. And he's like, mm, time travel. And Billy wants the words, everything was beautiful and nothing hurt put on his tombstone. And fucking hell. I've seen this quote on a million pictures of like sunsets and rainbows and galaxies and shit. And I had no idea what it was from before reading this book. If it's on all those other things, it's missing the point. It's absolutely missing the point. But that's like the minisode we did about quotes taken out of context. Right, yeah. I have seen so many soft focus pictures with this quote on it and i would have never known that this was what it was from no no it's wild uh, yeah it fuck it's a stroke of genius i love it then we're back in old 1944 billy stumbles out of his morphine sleep to pee finds all the american soldiers at the latrine pooping their brains out because their stomachs can't handle the food and one of the soldiers literally screams that he's pooping his brains out and vonnegut appears again and goes hey that was me. That was I made me. that joke about pooping my brain out my butt. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm going away again. Just thought you should know that. Bye. This is so great. I, I appreciate the fourth wall breaks. It's great. <laughs> he returns to the prison hospital, and Lazaro is there with a broken arm for trying to steal someone's cigarettes, and he goes on about revenge, and now he's going to hire hitmen to kill everyone who's ever wronged him, and they're like, yeah, that's cool. Then he's back on Trophamador, and hey, guess what? They brought him a buddy. A sexy buddy. Oh, wait, I mean a sex buddy. For him to have sex with. It's a porn star named Montana Wildhack, and she's freaked the fuck out. Billy tries to calm her down. Oh, by the way, just so you know, just some fun information. She's 20, and Billy, if you've forgotten at this point in time, because I know we time travel a lot, he's 44. Mm-hmm. Just a fun fact. And you know what? He's as virile as he's ever been. Yep. This is this is also when we get the line. Quote, he had a tremendous wang. Yep. Incidentally, you never know who will get one. <laughs> Which, like, God, I, like, I'm very angry about this, and I'm, of the scene, and I'm gonna talk more about that, but, like, I do love that everything about Billy is explicitly stated to be awkward and bad and sucks, but apparently he's just got a rockin' fucking hawk. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is his fantasy, so. As happens. (laughs) You never know who will get one. No, you never know who will get one. It's, it's, you know what? It's like the goddamn lottery. Billy was unstuck in time, but he won the dick lotto. He won the dick lotto. And the lotto is basically like Shirley Jackson's the lottery. So whoever, whoever pulls the smallest dick dies. <laughs> just throw rocks at you till you die. Small dick's gotta die. <laughs> RJ's never had to read the lottery. He's just sitting here. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> All I know is that book doesn't help you win the lottery. No. no. Damn shame. So, yeah, Montana. Yeah, okay, I'm, you know, I'm just going to read the quote. I'm just going to read the fucking quote because it makes yeah. me so goddamn mad. In time, Montana came to love and trust Billy Pilgrim. He did not touch her until she made it clear that she wanted him to. After she had been on Trophamador for what would have been an earthling week. She asked him shyly if he wouldn't sleep with her, which he did. It was heavenly. Thanks, I hate it. Yeah, a lot. A lot. Like, Billy... uh, Billy's fucking fantasies like and yeah like every every decision that billy has ever made in his fucking life aside from no the 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 only decisions he's ever made in life is like fucking banging whoever he wants to bang it is like 
yes, obviously, you know, we can contextualize it that it's a coping mechanism. It's a pretty standard fantasy. You're put in a position where, oh, I have to have sex with a super hot porn star, but it's okay. She's into it. She loves me. I have a massive dick. Like, it, it makes sense, but also, it's not a real coping mechanism by a real person. It's a being written by a writer, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Who made the decision to write this and have there be a 24-year age difference. Yeah, it's it's very fucking creepy. Uh, and that's like the frustrating thing is like that it's a good book and like you're enjoying yourself and you're just like oh like trucking along like da, 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 and then you're just like oh no fuck damn it. Right. I also look at it as like the Tralfamadorian moments on Tralfamador really they don't add anything to it. That's the only way I separate myself from those portions of it. That's a fair point. Yeah. No. Fuck that. So. Then we're, uh, we're post-abduction, we're post-plane crash, we're post-telling everyone about the abduction in 1968. Billy gives an eye exam to a 12-year-old boy who just lost his dad in Vietnam, so it goes. Mm-hmm. But is like, hey kid, it's okay, because aliens told me we're all still kind of alive in the times that we're not dead. Cool, yep. right? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Travels back to 1944 in the prison hospital where the English officer who played the blue fairy godmother in the Cinderella play pops in. He's the one Lazaro tried to steal the cigarettes from. He's exclusively referred to as the blue fairy godmother in this scene, which is important because the dialogue is really fucking great. Lazaro is his usual charming self. He's all, after the war, I'm going to kill you. And the fairy godmother's like, bitch, I might kill you first. And Lazaro's like, go fuck yourself. And the blue fairy godmother's like, believe me, I've tried. (laughs) My dude, I've been trapped here for four years. You better believe I gave fucking myself the old college try. Yeah, right? Like, that is, like, the ultimate insult comeback when somebody says that. So, Lazaro discovers he's lying next to Billy Pilgrim, who he's sworn vengeance on, and is like, hey, when all this is over at some point, I'm totes gonna kill you, because that one obnoxious kid told me to, and I'm a bastard man, and Billy's like, K, because of course. And in fact, Billy sees his own death in 1976, specifically on February 13th, which is important, because that's the anniversary of the bombing of Dresden, and that he's giving a speech to a massive group of people about aliens and the nature of time. So I guess he starts to be taken seriously at some point. He tells them he's going to be shot and killed, but like, hey, no biggie. And the police try to protect him, but God forbid Billy try to protect himself or change the future. And he is indeed shot in the head by a geriatric Paul Lazaro, who knows that revenge is a dish best served over 30 years later. So it goes. Back in 1944, the American prisoners are told they're going to be moved to a work camp in Dresden, and they don't have to worry about bombs, because Dresden is a town of no military importance. Wink, wink. They get to Dresden and it looks amazing, with architecture like something out of a fairy tale. In fact, a soldier proclaims that it looks like Oz. That soldier? Kurt Vonnegut. Just reminding us again, hey guys, it's me, the author, here too, with Billy, inserting realism into this wild ass story. Oh yeah. Because postmodernism. Oh yeah. Okay, Vonnegut, out. Dresden is responsible for making medicine, food, and cigarettes, and soldiers guarding the Americans are more kids and old men, but the American POWs are in such shitty condition that that's all it takes. They're taken to a building that was once a slaughterhouse, specifically slaughterhouse number five, and told that this is where they sleep. Billy Time travels to the fateful plane flight where he doesn't say anything about how the plane is going to crash because he doesn't want to look silly. Right. I mean, nobody wants to look silly. Like, (laughs) put yourself in the situation. If the big bopper knew this shit, he would have said something. God damn it, Billy. Fuck. 
<laughs> like, nothing about, like, free will or the inability to fight fate or, like, determinism or anything like that. He just don't, he doesn't want to look like a, like a dumbass. Right, yeah. Which is weird. Like, it's the accepting fate moment. Because, like, even if Billy says something, it's not like anybody's going to believe him. It's true. But, like, he doesn't even try. No. And it's not even like, well, you can't, I've seen the future. You can't change it. It's, what want people to laugh at me? I think the only thing that Billy's ever tried at is banging and going to school to get a degree in optometry. Yeah, I suppose so. So he doesn't try. Plane crashes. Because that's Billy fucking Pilgrim for you. And he uh, fractures his skull and some skiers find him. He slams into Sugarbush, as he pointed <laughs> out, which is still funny to say. Yeah. And Billy uh, time travels back to when his daughter Barbara is yelling at him about his alien obsession and that she wishes he'd never heard of Kilgore Trout. Then we learn that Billy's done more than just heard of the guy. He's met him because he lives right in Billy's hometown of Ilium, where because he never made any money off his crappy books. Oh, wait, sorry. It was street racing. While the street racing goes on, Meg, you ever think about how NBA Commissioner Adam Silver looks exactly like Michelle Foucault? No, that's not fair. Until you, that is totally not fair. Until you held his picture up just now. <laughs> the resemblance is there. And you know, speaking of optometrist, Michelle Foucault, he really has that look. Yeah. yeah. He's always really concerned about people's gazes. He is very concerned about gazing. Like an optometrist. Yeah. <laughs> You think the Panopticon has 2020 vision? I was just about to say, which looks more like the Panopticon to you? Number one, number two. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. So he meets Kilgore Trout. I'm trying. I'm trying to drag us through the end of this book. He meets Kilgore Trout. Kilgore Trout makes no money off his shitty books. He manages a network of newspaper boys. He's an asshole. Mm-hmm. Billy runs into him in 1964 and is like, hey, come to my 18th wedding anniversary party. And Trout's like, sure. And he's just a, a weirdo the whole time. There's a barbershop quartet there for some reason, and it gives Billy not time travel disease, but actual PTSD. Right. Like, that's so bad that he has to go and lock himself in the bathroom, which is awkward because his son is using it at the time. Yeah, very weird. And he he remembers, uh, again, he doesn't time travel to, but he remembers the actual bombing where he and the other prisoners sheltered in the meat locker while the entire town burned to the ground around them. So it goes. And when they emerged from the slaughterhouse the next day, the guards had their mouths open wide in shock, and they looked just like the barbershop quartet downstairs. Billy thinks that Dresden looks like the surface of the moon, and the guards and prisoners awkwardly climb around the destruction until they reach the end of the city and find, of all things, an inn open for business where they could spend the night. Uh, the inn had opened in case of any survivors, and Billy and the gang are there first. Jump to Billy right after the plane crash, and we get Valencia's death played out. So it goes. That she hopped in the car to go see him, only to get in a car accident and die of carbon monoxide poisoning. Billy's still stuck in the hospital next to this asshole named Bertram Copeland Rumford, who thinks Billy is a vegetable and says mean things and is a character in another Vonnegut novel, and I don't care because he's a dick and I hate him, and he's an old man with a super hot, significantly younger, explicitly ditzy wife because obviously, of course he does. The women in this novel only exist to serve as a commentary of the male characters. It's cool. It's fine. So it goes. Well, and that also, like, it, it draws parallels to the fact that like with billy's fantasies especially you know the tralfamadorian shit and like some of the other fantasies he has it's constructed from real world experience 
So like there's like the the fact that he's banging Montana Wildhack on Tralfamador, like, you know, he's read an article about her and how she went missing and it's like, Oh, she didn't go missing. She's raising the baby on Tralfamador. <laughs> it's like it, it's definitely PTSD and like the tools that he has and that he uses are like Vonnegut presents them to you and you know, not in any order, but like you can kind of pick them up and see where they are at any given time. Oh yeah, definitely. There's because it's it's after this that he uh, what is it? He goes back to 1950. No, see, I get all muddled, and that's the point. The the point is that you get muddled. Mm-hmm. You you want to get as lost in time as Billy is, but it's once he's brought home from the hospital post airplane accident that he runs away to New York to get onto a radio show to tell people about the aliens. That he goes into a dirty bookstore, dirty as in por- porno bookstore, because it's the yeah. '60s and you know things haven't been properly horny for a while. Right, and that's where he finds a magazine article where it says, you know, whatever happened to Montana Wild Hack and what you just said. Yeah, she's she's breastfeeding my kid on Tralfamador. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and just to kind of really hammer at home she's wearing a necklace with a locket in it that has the serenity prayer yeah. from billy's office inside of it right and the radio show he gets on he gets kicked off of it like immediately and the, what the show is supposed to talk about what the other guests are there for is they're talking about the state of the novel because meta humor like uh one guy says like the novel's there to what is it like teach women how to give a good blowjob or something like that it's like really dumb something really fucking stupid yeah well blowjobs are important business people <laughs> Nothing stupid about this. <laughs> do you need a novel to really teach you how to do it, though? Need something. Well, that's what do we. Uh... I mean, you were talking. You were complaining about my dick-eating abilities, Max. <laughs> Some education is better your than your dick none. slurping abilities. Well, you got to be what? But, but... Well, what I learned. What I learned. Well, you, you, you can't give it a try. But what what I've understood is that Jillian Anderson could teach me everything about it. I don't need to read a novel. I just need to go watch the Netflix show. That's a fictional character. <laughs> A novel is a work of fiction. I'm not sure. We've been doing this show for three and a half years now. I'm not sure if you're aware of this. Some are not Novels fiction. are works of fiction. Some are real. So I think the big question here is that is... Is Kama Sutra real or fake? It's not called a novel. I'll tell you that much. Is his tremendous weighing a fantasy or is it real? We don't know. We don't. I think... Because he comments on it sarcastically, it might be real. It could be real. Unfortunately, we have to go back to 1945 where Billy gets put on corpse removal duty, which is terrible and awful. And it gets to the point where they just have to flamethrower the bodies. At some point, Edgar Derby does indeed steal the teapot and is executed by firing squad. So it goes. They lock up the POWs in a stable until one day they find it unlocked and that they stumble out. The war is over. They're free. Spring has come. The birds are singing. And as Vonnegut promised us years and years ago, forward, sideways, and back at the beginning of the book, the novel ends with the birds singing, Pootie Wheat! And that is Slaughterhouse-Five. Good God. (laughs) Again, I want to apologize for picking this novel. (laughs) As you well should. (laughs) So let's skim over adaptations real quick. So there was a 1972 movie, so there was a pretty quick turnaround with it getting picked up for an adaptation. I have not seen it. I did watch the trailer. I did too. pretty wild. Yeah. Four and a half goddamn minutes long. And it's the most boring trailer I think I've ever seen. In a world. (laughs) As it goes. (laughs) It could have used that. It could have, yeah. 
trailers in the 70s were weird, but I was like sitting wondering like, how would you film that and make it coherent? Then I watched the trailer and was like, ah, okay. I don't think it would be a very enjoyable experience without Vonnegut's prose. No, I don't I don't think so either. And like I think that's why only two of his novels have been adapted into films. So it was a was a huge flop mm-hmm. audience wise, but it got a ton of awards. It got the the prix de jury at the nineteen seventy two Cannes Film Festival. It won the Hugo Award for the best dramatic presentation, and it won the Saturn Award for best sci fi film. It was actually the first ever recipient of that award. Um, and then also in a, a rare event, Vonnegut himself said that he was perfectly satisfied with the adaptation. I mean, most of the time, like writers will lie about it up front and then just voice their displeasure later, kind of like Stephen King. Yeah, see, but I, yeah, Vonnegut doesn't seem the type no. that I think if he didn't like it, I think he would say so, which uh, that'll come up in a second here. <laughs> so uh, the book was actually adapted for the screen before the stage. Uh, the play adaptation came uh, not until 1989. And I don't know, I feel like it would be a huge pain in the ass to perform mm-hmm. with frequent and random scene changes taking place. I feel like there would have to be significant revisions to the story. I didn't dig too far into it. In 1996, the novel was adapted into an opera, and I have no fucking idea how that would work. I I don't even want to speculate on that. That's usually my feelings on a number of the books that we cover that invariably, and for reasons beyond my meager imagination, get turned into operas. Now, here's Vonnegut's quote on this one. Quote, Slaughterhouse-Five has been turned into an opera by a young German and will have its premiere in Munich this June. I'm not going there. Not interested. I mean, that's fair, and I, like, God bless Vonnegut and his bluntness. I, I just, I love it when it comes out. Like, I, I will endlessly go back to his uh, interview from The Daily Show in, like, 2004. It's so good. Oh, that's a good interview. It's so fun. All right, and that brings us to the part of the show that we always get to. We're going to review these finger puppets because... You, you, yeah, you, you have been looking very... Like, you've been very quiet, and I know it's because you've been looking at finger puppets. Can you guess who this is? Ono oh, class alum. Well, you said no Ono oh, class alum, so that narrows it down significantly. So is that a finger puppet of Zora Neale Hurston? It is. Okay. Well, what do you think of that? I would not have thought it was her if you hadn't honestly made it much easier They got a whole bunch me. of these. Rob cannot participate in this. <laughs> just so you know, this is Pavlov's dog. That's just a dog. It's um, just a fucking dog. Wait, show me Georgia O'Keefe. Uh, show me... Well, here's a Maya Angelou. Okay, that kind of... That looks like a Maya Angelou. <laughs> Whoa! They did Georgia O'Keefe dirty. What, what, uh, describe this, place. She looks like an old man. Oh, God! An old man. She looks like an old man who ran for mayor. That's not So, right. here's the thing. It looks like an old man wearing an all-black karate outfit. Yeah, wait. With a, with a yeah. white sash with a rose on the white sash. Yeah. And then a black leather hat. It's it's real bad. Look, just Google George O'Keefe finger. Whoa, puppet. it's Hitler! It's Hitler! Oh, George Orwell looks like Hitler. <laughs> I mean, he was an anti-Semite. So. He what? He what? It's very true. <laughs> All right, we have to stop playing this, or we'll play it forever. There you go. I need you to pull it in for just like a few minutes here. All right. Look away. Okay. Hey, RJ. Sup? Slaughterhouse Five. Yep. Good or bad? So Slaughterhouse Five. Yep. I think it was a very important book, especially for its time. I'm happy it saved a man who felt like he was drowning. Gave him a second chance at life. He really turned it around. I was really worried when I was watching the VH1 behind the scenes there that we were going to lose Kurt earlier. 
Ah. But he turned it all around with the book. I like the aliens. Aliens are good. They're fun. And uh, war. war. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Say it again. Huh. That's good right. God. There you go. <laughs> hey, Megan. Yeah, you? The fifth Slaughterhouse book. <laughs> yeah. The slaughter that happened in house number five. <laughs> yep. Good or bad? I really enjoyed it a lot. I read it in like, I think just under a day and a half. The prose is great, but it got me to like a postmodern novel, which is a rare thing for me. I can count on one hand the amount of postmodern novels I have enjoyed and still have fingers left over. So that's saying a lot, but it does a lot of annoying male writer shit that I don't like. Kurt Vonnegut has a woman problem. Billy Pilgrim is wildly frustrating and annoying as a character, but it's hard to tell how much of that, you know, is on purpose because trauma. Rob, you said it really well when you said that he's milk toast in a, a trauma sandwich. So overall, definitely think it's it's good. There's certainly a lot of problematic elements in there. So many male writers can't write women. But overall, it's like reading a Thomas Pynchon book, except without all of the parts where I want to kick Thomas Pynchon in the dick. Mm -hmm. So that's a good thing. So I say good. Hey, Rob. What's happening? Slaughterhouse-Five. It was the fifth one. It was. Much like Mambo number five. Yeah, I mean, Lou Vega's all over this. Okay, that is an odds audio poison. Um, good, good or bad? Uh, I, I think really good. good. Good, bad, or dog? Cindy, Denise. <laughs> I don't e, think either of Farika. I don't think any of those names are Gina. in Mambo number five. I don't think Harry. So. I don't think there's a Cindy or a Denise. Ida. I think it's great. I think it's a phenomenal book, despite its flaws, which is basically his inability to write women, any good women at all. The dog is furious about it. But I think what Vonnegut did was he was and he wasn't afraid to pull his punches. So he was able to describe war and I think ways that people hadn't before because at that time what you had was these really romantic versions of what World War II was so like The Naked and the Damned is probably the first book that came out of World War II that like really painted this kind of romantic view of war which is Norman Mailer's first novel and it's a doorstopper book about fighting in the Pacific and being the hero. And this is the first book, aside from Catch-22, come along and say, well, uh, maybe the heroes, maybe we shouldn't consider them heroes. Maybe we should consider them from the aspect of what happened to them afterwards, which is all of this trauma. Like, Vonnegut's the first person to look at all of these soldiers coming back and saying well they're dealing with shit i i think this is a a great novel for everything it does which is being unafraid to not pull the punches when it needs to and to pull the punches when it needs to especially when he's describing like some of the war parts and like he's using very vague language but like he does it in such a way that like it's very impactful like the barbershop quartet reference so yeah it's a it's a very good novel. Absolutely. And that will about do it for us on this episode of Ono Lit Class. 
Thank you so much for coming on, Rob. Thank you for having me. It has been a delay. You, you've always been on. You will be on. You're continuing to be on. You'll have never not been on. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we will look at this uh, moment as rarefied, luminous spaghetti. Yes. <laughs> we will continue to carry you on in our hearts. <laughs> <laughs> my heart will, as they say, go on. <laughs> so my heart goes on. Rob, why don't you tell everybody again what it is you do and where it is you do it. Uh, so I have a podcast. The toilet twice a day. Yeah, oh my god. You twice? Sh- try try three times, bud. I am a heavy hitter. <laughs> okay? Uh, I, I am the host of the Our Strange Skies podcast. And if you want to learn more about that, ourstrangeskies.com. You can find links to everything uh, from social media profiles to our episodes and everything in between. Awesome. And if you if, if you want to do things with us, ohnolitclass.com. <laughs> I've been ruined. I've been ruined by Kurt Vonnegut and time and P.O.D. <laughs> P.O.D. ruined a lot of lives. The next episode will be on May 21st. Until then, I'm Megan. I'm RJ. I'm Rob. Goodbye for now. This no, goes out no, to you. No. <laughs> We love you. Bye. So it goes. Hey, RJ. It's Papa Hemingway. That is Papa. Oh, that God, that doesn't look like Papa Hemingway at all. <laughs> Jesus Christ. That just looks like an old man. I could do 15 minutes just on this. You could. That's a lot of material. All right. <laughs> Oh, Edgar Allan Poe looks like an old queen. <laughs> oh, Rob, if you want to have some fun, go on Amazon and, and just <laughs> just start looking these up. Maybe, They're pretty I, good. I, I will they have to do that. They made him into a dirty man. <laughs> they made James Baldwin look like a pedophile. <laughs> oh, wait. Perfect for this episode. Oh, they have a Kurt Vonnegut. Oh, <laughs> no. Oh, no. Holy fuck. James Baldwin does look like a pedophile in that goddamn trench coat. Thank you. Wait, is that your... Please tell me that's not your Kurt Vonnegut finger puppet. Uh, hold on. Let me... Because, damn. <laughs> yeah, it, yes, yeah, it looks exactly like that. Uh, no shit. No. Oh, no. That's an unfortunate finger puppet. I mean, I oh, guess yeah. it's recognizable as Kurt Vonnegut. He kind of looks like a mad scientist. He's, he's always he's had that curly, weird-ass curly hair and the mustache. That's true. Yeah. P- please look at Moby Dick. Wait, they have a Moby, Dif- Moby Dick finger puppet? There's a Moby Dick finger. You know what? I might actually buy that one. He looks, <laughs> he looks fucking stoned. That's the winner. He looks like he just did Holy a Holy fuck, rip. he is looking <laughs> rough, bud. Get that fucking whale to a doctor.